Yesterday upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Well, how I wish he'd go away. When I came home last night at three, the man was waiting there for me. But when I looked around the hall, I couldn't see him there at all. Go away, go away, don't you come back anymore. Go away, go away, and please, don't slam the door. Last night I saw upon the stair a little man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. The poem Antigonish by William Hughes Mearns. Written in 1899, this poem about a haunted house in Antigonish, Nova Scotia, Canada, would become the basis for one of American grunge rock band Nirvana's most memorable performances during their MTV Unplugged show in 1993, nearly 100 years after the poem was written. Uh, Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain sang cryptic, haunting, Mirren-inspired lyrics so naturally that a majority of the people who heard it swore the song was a Nirvana original, despite the fact that it had been written 23 years earlier in 1970 and was still regularly played on tour by the massively famous British musician who wrote it. Quote, Kids that come up afterwards and say, It's cool you're doing a Nirvana song. And I think, Fuck you, you little tosser, said David Bowie in an interview with Rolling Stone. The title track off Bowie's third album was a massive hit for Nirvana, and before that, it was a European hit for Scottish singer Lulu in 1973, who hit number three on the UK singles chart with her version, which featured instrumentals and backing vocals by Bowie and most of Bowie's band. The only person who struggled to have a hit with this song was David Bowie himself. In fact, the entire making of this song and album was a struggle for Bowie and his collaborators. Bowie was preoccupied with his first wife, Angie Barnett, to whom he had just been married, and he was in the middle of changing managers and in constant debate with his fellow band members and record label. The original name of the album, The Metropolist, a title paying tribute to Fritz Lang's 1927 film Metropolis, was changed at the last minute by Mercury Records, and this was not the only element they saw fit to change. The original album artwork was an illustration made by Mike Weller, it depicted a cowboy with a speech bubble in front of a mental asylum. The speech bubble contained the phrase, Roll up your sleeves and show us your arms, a pun on record players, guns, and drug use. Although Bowie originally approved the artwork, he later decided that he wanted something else and set up a photo shoot with Keith McMillan, in which Bowie wore a dress designed by Michael Fish. The photos from the shoot caused some upset due to a man being in a dress. And so Mercury Records rejected Bowie's dress photo for the U.S. release, opting for the Weller illustration with the provocative phrase removed. Bowie had his way on the U.K. release, however, and the image of him lounging in a dress with playing cards scattered in front of him is now iconic. The album was the first to feature Bowie staples Mick Ronson and Woody Woodmansey. Tony Visconti was also heavily involved in the album, playing bass, arranging music, and more. Visconti took issue with Bowie's work during this album, and the two would not work together again for several years. Visconti said this of the process. The band, sometimes with Bowie contributing guitar, sometimes not, would record an instrumental track, which might or might not be based upon an original Bowie idea. Then, at the last possible moment, Bowie would reluctantly uncurl himself from the sofa on which he was lounging with his wife and dash off a set of lyrics. Bowie took issue with Visconti's description of the album making, claiming that the chord changes in the songs were obvious evidence of his critical work during the creation process. The end result of all this struggling, infighting, and reluctance is an album that was initially ignored by critics and now viewed as an incredible hard rock album and the first in a long line of masterpiece David Bowie albums. That's right, today on Cover Me, we're talking about the title track from David Bowie's third studio album, The Man Who Sold the World. Up on the 
That's right. It's Cover Me, the only podcast that talks about famous songs and their many cover versions and compares them against one another to find out which one we passed upon the stairs. I'm your host as always, Jake Cressy, joined by my gazeless co-host, Alex Mildenberger. Alex Mildenberger. That's my name. That's you. How's it going, Alex? It's going all right. It's having some internet problems, but they seem to have subsided for now. So hopefully we yeah. can get at least one podcast length of functioning internet out of this. Yeah, let's hope so. Um, mm. I'm not helping by writing the longest intro I've written for this podcast. That was lengthy. I wasn't sure what <laughs> when was going to happen. Gonna I mean, yeah. you had to read the whole poem and then there's a whole story. And then you talk about Tony Visconti because he's a guy. Because, yeah, there's so much that's, like, important about this album, and I just thought the poem was, like, a great entry point, and then from there, things, I think, just got out of hand. (laughs) I mean, that kind of describes, that's like a microcosm of this podcast as a whole. The the things just getting out of hand? Yeah, Yeah. like, it starts with an idea, and then it just kind of goes off somewhere. Uh, Yeah, I will remind you that the first episode we ever recorded of this podcast was, like, 35 minutes. Yeah, but I talk for a long time now. I mean, That's, personally. Oh, we both do. We're, we're just we're just a couple of gabbers. I mean, we still haven't discussed the song at all. And we're ten. We're not actually ten minutes in because the first, like, five minutes is not usable. But. Yeah, but a five minute, it's usually, like, a minute <laughs> to two. Sometimes I got three paragraphs where I'm like, what's up? You know what song this is. It's this song. It was a hit in 1975 or whatever. And then we're in it. Yeah, well, I mean, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the man who sold the world. Let's do it, Alex. Um, you know this. I know this. It's a great song. It's a great album. Uh, did you? Which version of this did you hear first? Did you hear the Nirvana version first, or had was the Bowie your first? Uh, I was. It was Bowie. Bowie first. Um, I didn't. I never really listened to Nirvana personally. Um, I knew the name of the song. I didn't know what it was. It was another one of those, like Life on Mars. Because there was a lot of Bowie I heard about, heard about before I heard it, right? And this was and much like one of those classic songs. Yeah, much like Life on Mars, classic song, great title. It's very evocative, yeah, right? Very evocative. Yeah, the man who like sold what, the world. What does that mean to sell the world? And really? I'll be honest with every listener: we're not going to crack that case nope. today. Nope, <laughs> not even fucking close. Uh, but yeah, I had heard the Bowie version first, because like you, I was just estranged from Nirvana for some reason. I think having listened to this cover this week and done our discussion on Smells Like Teen Spirit, uh, I like I feel like I really should dive into more Nirvana, because I think they are actually a good band. I think Kurt Cobain's an interesting character, but yeah, just... Yeah, but I know like five Nirvana songs, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like so divorced from Nirvana content. And it's it's very strange. But, the '90s uh, were always kind of a blind spot of mine, and I didn't really have any way to get into that. Like we didn't have people around us who were like, "Hey, check out some of that Nirvana" or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I had uh, like my my oldest sister was a big influence for a lot of music, which is like probably why I got into David Bowie before ever Nirvana. I think she probably was shit talking Nirvana, so that strayed me away from that route. But yeah, nobody was around to be the the cool older brother or weird dude on your street who like smokes weed and lends you grunge (laughs) cassettes you know that classic character uh yeah totally (laughs) 
We all had one of those, yeah. didn't we? Well, yeah, yeah, who didn't? <laughs> the neighborhood stoner scamp hanging out with kids who are way too young to be hanging out with them. A classic. Alex, so much yeah. to say about this album. I didn't know that that, that illustration was the original artwork, and I no, further I... didn't know that it had a speech bubble with, with raunchy text. No, the only... The first time I saw that image was like this past week because I looked it up, looked up David Bowie, and I saw, mm-hmm. or or like two weeks ago, and I saw that there's a remix version that Tony Visconti did, just mm-hmm, twenty just last year, and it has that artwork, and it's called the Metropolist, and it has the speech bubble, but it's in Spotify, so it's too small to read, so I I didn't make anything of it, and I was wondering what the connection between the name and the art were to this album. Yeah, and now I know because you told me. Exactly, yeah. So Mental Asylum, apparently based on the one that uh, Bowie's half-brother was committed. Right, because um, he kind of had, yeah. had like a long family history of... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like psychological conditions yeah. that would get yeah. people committed. Yeah, I, I, I would... I want to say schizophrenia, but I, it's, it's been a while since I've read... Like the Bowie biography. Yeah, I don't remember the specifics, unfortunately. I don't remember. Yeah, he was committed there, and then it has an image of actor John Wayne, or at least the the Cowboys based on John Wayne, um, which is itself supposed to be a reference to the the track Running Gun Blues. That makes sense. He is holding a gun. Mm -hmm. And that song is about shooting people with a gun. A bunch. Yeah. The song is actually, I believe, about post-traumatic stress or something like that. Yeah, I believe so. A lot of the 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 songs on this album are about essentially mental illness at some extent, whether it's post traumatic stress, depression. Uh it seems to be at the heart of this even though it's not like ever outrightly stated. Yeah, it gets pretty dark um at times. Like like some of them, even like She Shook Me Cold, which I don't actually know what it's about specifically, but it sounds more sexual, but like it like in the name, but then the way it's it's delivered sounds much more sinister. Um and then other songs like Save Your Machine, which is like sci-fi apocalyptic stuff about a machine that kills everyone and might be based on like I have no mouth and yet I must scream or something like that. Like it's yeah. that sort of in that vein of Yeah, so the of machines that rule things and right the sort of apocalyptic yeah. fiction based on sci-fi like yeah. uh, technology will eventually kill us to save us kind of thing um yeah. yeah so the the lyrics according to wikipedia are inspired by figures like alistair crowley franz kafka and friedrich nietzsche so those are i think though you can look at this album as a whole and be like yeah that makes sense yeah, so like in terms of the Bowie chronology, it's a very early album. Technically, it's his third album. Mm-hmm. The first two albums were much more sort of loose in terms of album like cohesion. They were yeah. more kind of collections of singles than anything else. That's right. And as much as I and like his second album, which is sort of called Space Oddity, but also sort of just called David Bowie. Um, it doesn't have the, the cohesion, cohesive feeling that The Man Who Sold the World has, for sure. No. 
Yeah, and it's just such a, like, between these two, such a hard right from the very folk rock music yeah, of Space Oddity. after this, into Hunky Dory. Like, pretty mm-hmm. significant shift from, yeah, these, like, much more hard, distorted guitars into, like, quicksand. Or whatever. Yeah. Or, like, yeah. uh, kooks. It's so, like, bubbly. Yeah, a song he wrote for his son, whereas this, you have all of this this anguish and, and darkness just compacted into a single album. And one of the reasons some people state for that unity on a lyrical level is actually the, the last-minute approach that Visconti was complaining about, is that it would be like, they're like, we have to lay out this track today, like we're going to mix it, which is what happened with this song. And with the man who sold the world, and he was like, all right, I'll fucking knock these out. And so <laughs> he wrote the lyrics in the reception area of the studio while Visconti was waiting at the mixing console. He quickly recorded the vo- vocals, and Visconti added a, uh, a flange effect and mixed the track in a few hours. And that was apparently just the standard process for this album. <laughs> was like, we have the instrumentals, we just need lyrics. Bowie was like, oh, very well, I will write some lyrics. I don't know why he's one of the Beatles. But... <laughs> <laughs> They do that, and then so that's why there is this unity is just because it was so last minute crunch. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting method. I I I think it worked out because I'm a pretty big fan of this album. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, nobody who made it was a fan of the process at the very least. But like in later years, I think both uh, Bowie and Visconti have like gone on record being like, yeah, this album was really. Like something special, like it is very yeah. At the very least, I mean, I know two things. I know one, um, David Bowie was a fan of the song "The Man Who Sold the World." Uh, I've heard him mm-hmm. like introduce it in live albums where he would say like, "This is a really old song that I I think kind of you know had some had something going here." Yeah. Uh, to paraphrase heavily, <laughs> um, <laughs> and also the width of a circle, the first song in the album. I'm trying to remember the name. There was a a David Bowie album that was like less popular songs that he picked that he thought people should listen to. I got out of the library a number of years ago. Um, Mm. It had The Width of a Circle on it and it had Beauty and the Beast on it and like always crashing the same car. Stuff that like weren't necessarily singles. They were maybe a little bit more buried, but he was like, yeah, I dig this one. So he likes at least two songs in this album. Based on what evidence I could find. And at least that one year he said that this was, for him, a better album than Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, at least musically. He was like, this is much more interesting than the straightforward rock and roll that made up Ziggy Stardust. Interesting. But he's had, he had such yeah. a long career and talked yeah, if so that, much Yeah, if shit. that was like early, <laughs> if that was like Bowie right after Ziggy Stardust, I'm, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he was very... And he's he just like, hey, fuck this. Let's do the next thing. Yeah a lot of phases of his music and he'll either talk down the music itself or the persona he had during that time. Mm-hmm. I was reading about the thin white Duke and how he was like, yeah, yeah, it was maybe a little crass. Cause he would just say like pro fascist shit in interviews and be like, yeah, yeah that, that was quite all right. an interesting phase. The fascism one. I believe he did wear a Nazi uniform at one point. Yeah. I, I do believe that is true. There was some Nazism connection. So, yeah, that yeah. wasn't great. Um, 
with that, let's talk about these lyrics, Alex. I think we're avoiding them a bit because it's gonna be <sighs> tough. They're like pretty vague, and even in the descriptions that, like, I was because I was doing some research, like, mm-hmm. it is not agreed on what this line means. It's like, yeah, because it probably doesn't mean a lot necessarily. Right. Maybe but the confidence means. with which people in Genius in other pages will say what this song is about is unlike any other track we've talked about although and, show, and people I get feel. pretty confident about some far out stuff on genius yes they do but here it is just like they're like this is what there is a there's one of the comments where it's like the the man that you're talking about is jesus christ i'm like how did you get <laughs> what <that?" laughs> uh, uh, you know it's following the breadcrumbs really yeah, it's yeah, it is some real following the breadcrumbs nonsense. But like the um, breadcrumbs are a little bit drugged or something. Yeah, they're you know a little bit not there at all. Oh, speaking of, verse one, first verse. We passed upon the it. stair. We spoke of was and when. Although I wasn't there, he said I was his friend, which came as some surprise. I spoke into his eyes. I thought you died alone a long, long time ago. Yes. Now, before we we dig into these lines specifically, I will give us the one useful piece of information we have here, which is a quote from David Bowie himself, mm-hmm. where he says, I guess I wrote it because there was a part of myself that I was looking for. That song for me always exemplified kind of how you feel when you're young, when you know there's a piece of yourself that you haven't really put together yet. You have this great searching, this great need to find out who you really are. Which, at the very least, I think speaks to who these, the narrator and this character are. The man who sold the world, and they are ultimately the same person. I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah, it does seem to me that they're the same person. And the way the song itself um, delivers it makes that feel ambiguous. Because obviously it's a conversation mm-hmm. between two people. And, excuse me, hang on. my. All right, I'm good. I was just doing, yep. like, I don't know what it's called. It's like, I wasn't burping, but I was feeling like a burp. Mm. You're just like, but there's, a little, little yeah. built up. Um, little gassy. Um, so it's a conversation between two people. And mm-hmm. it's the same person, actually. Uh, but they they pass and they talk about their past, but the person's saying they're talking about a past that didn't exist. and And... One one of them is saying, hey, I know you, but the other one doesn't recognize him. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, he's like, you were, I, he said I was his friend, and which seems to imply that they had, like, a healthier relationship that was ongoing. And the narrator's like, well, I'm surprised, because I, I honestly thought this dude was dead. <laughs> like, yeah. Not just dead, but died alone. Which like a, yeah. I thought might be, like, a euphemism for suicide. I wasn't totally sure. That's definitely possible with the just the sort of air of this song having mental illness. Yeah, hanging there like it's definitely a possible interpretation. But I don't know if there's any basis for that or not. Even like he says, we spoke of was and when, which like is that a real phrase? Those are just, I mean, that's a past tense word and a not. What's the tense? Yeah, it's one? not a it's not a real phrase yeah. that anyone uses, but I think I think it does. It is just like we shot the shit about the past. It, it seems to make sense because mm-hmm, it starts out quite casual, and I think that comes up in verse two for the narrator. 
until a certain point, this is just a casual encounter for him. Right. And then he's kind of realizing, like, wait a minute. Yeah. Aren't you dead? Or, like, I, I thought you at least weren't around anymore. And yeah, now, like, you weren't around. If it's the same person, I kind of thought of it as... I, I guess he was thinking about, like, like in the quote, about mm-hmm. himself, but not, not necessarily, like, who he... Trying to understand who he was. I guess more mm-hmm. than anything. So I guess I don't totally understand the connection between that and this idea of like not recognizing yourself. Or maybe it's a question of finding yourself and then not recognizing who you've become or something. Mm-hmm. Time is yeah, kind so of some... vague in this song. Yeah. So whether this is like his past self, so literally just like a previous Bowie, a younger Bowie who was was different from current Bowie, whether this is a Bowie who went down a different path in life and he's just encountering this idea again, perhaps, of, like, what he thought he was going to be. And so it could be, like, an alternate Bowie. It could be a previous Bowie. It could be a future Bowie, right? It's mm-hmm. Or it could simply be a very, a very Fight Club-esque interpretation where it's, like, this one exists still. This person who he thought he was no longer... Because there's a point in uh, in Fight Club where he's like, "Oh, Tyler's gone." I think like I haven't I haven't talked to him in a long time, and then it turns out that he's been there every step of the way, right? Right, because and, yeah, I mean, spoilers yeah, for Fight Club. Yeah, if you haven't seen the it's film, only or read been the book. twenty years. Get but on yeah, that. what whatever this projection is of the narrator. And I'm part of me thinks that perhaps the narrator himself is the projection, but we'll get into that a bit. Mm. It's yeah, it is some personal attachment and something that he thought was was gone and would not come up again. Right. And that's that's really, I think, all we can gain from the first verse. It's a surprise encounter with some part of your being yourself, the man who wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like yesterday upon the stair, and this one happens upon the stair as well. So it's very direct in what it's referencing. Mm-hmm. It's v- it's very clear that the man, whatever he may be, is not like physically present. He's so much so as cool. he is mentally present. He's like, oh, oh, oh. Or something. So we come to the chorus. Oh no, not me. I never lost control. You're face to face with the man who sold the world. Which seems to be a response to the previous statement because yeah, so this in is the not narrative the of the song he speaking. says oh i thought you died which is a weird thing to say right like mm-hmm. but aren't you didn't you die i'm like yeah, no, aren't no, you no, dead? no no he's no. like no no, no 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 not me um which of course like you were saying with the like fight club sort of uh situation where there's sort of two um aspects to who you are then we're talking about losing control and and of well, just generally saying control, you know? Mm-hmm. And perhaps then... Um, how do I want to phrase this? I mean, in that interpretation, it's like two aspects controlling the same person and sort of fighting for control. I don't think it's quite that uh, mm-hmm. or anything, but it's kind of like different fa- different parts of, of a person. Um, that was also when I was thinking about it from the like suicide thing, referring again to suicide as 
losing control, but I don't right. know. Right. That's pretty tenuous. Right. So instead of, and this might tie into with the man who sold the world, instead of killing himself in the physical sense, he's simply severed ties to reality, right? Oh, so he's not saying I didn't die. He's saying I never mm-hmm. lost control. It's like, yeah, I've still been just... here. Like, I was dead, kind of, but that doesn't mean that that my impact is gone or something like that. Yeah. And also, it, to to be part of the world and truly exist in it and interact with it is to not be in control to a, a great extent. So if you remove yourself from the world without ending your life, it's like, I'm maintaining control. All it cost me was the world. You know, it was everything. The world. The world. Face to face with the man who sold the world. What does it mean to be the man who sold the world? The world. That is, it's, it is the question. It's, it's provocative. It gets the people going. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting phrase. And obviously, like, the most literal interpretation of, like, selling the world to someone. I don't see, I don't see what that would mean in this context. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, the sort of continuation of the phrase being the man who sold the world on something convince the world that something was true um yeah and kind of implying that that thing is not true so that's maybe the control that they're Mm -hmm. referring to um it's interesting because at this point there weren't like maybe there were like this is early bowie so it's not like we've seen a bunch of characters Mm because later on um particularly in like scary monsters when he actually he'll actually like address this idea that there are many Bowies or many Bowie characters that he's been, um, but at this point, although he had done quite a few different things, um, in his sort of artistic endeavors, there weren't he hadn't done the like kind of selling out of Ziggy Stardust and and later. And yeah, I don't know if this, this point, is just being not prophetic even famous. or what. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, it, yeah, it is very interesting because some people erroneously attribute it to exactly what you've just talked about, how he had these personas. And they're like, oh, well, he was Ziggy Stardust, and this is him talking about how he still is David Bowie, and he's the man who sold the world because he pretended to be Ziggy Stardust, mm-hmm. but that's that simply can't be true. But maybe he <laughs> just had this idea because even I, – I know we talked about – uh, it came up last week when we were talking about um, Wild as the Wind, um, where he would say, like, oh, I'm I'm not talented. I'm not this talented rock star. I'm just pretending to be a rock star. Like, I, I, I found this formula, and I follow it, and mm-hmm. that makes me a rock star, and people buy it. Right, and he has a theater background, so he really did seem to approach music from a performance perspective. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that could also be him just like grabbing onto that idea very early. Yeah, it may just be this is kind of like the first or the first that I can think of really exposure of that idea. And I'm sure he had it in his mind before Ziggy Stardust existed. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it happened to work out is just maybe a coincidence. Yeah, maybe. and Or just like a heightening of what was present in this, right? Because at, at a very base level, a performer is not always the person they are on stage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
And so then for David Bowie, it just happens to be very easy to point that out because you're like, well, after this, he became Ziggy Stardust. And yeah. Like... It's like, it's kind of that like survivorship bias too, because he's saying like, oh, I, I found the formula. Like, I just know mm-hmm. the formula. That's why I can succeed. But he, as far as I can tell, like tried to share that and other people didn't succeed in the same way he did. So anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little bit off topic. But uh, yeah, I think it's obvious now that it's not as simple as him following a rock and roll formula. No, I, I would agree with that. Um, the other thing I can only say about this one is, it, again, with that sort of Fight Club influence, if we view the, the person he meets upon the stairs as having, let's say, like certain motivations in mm-hmm. life, because you can do an action and be like, well, I'm not doing it because of this. I'm doing it because of this. So if the narrator had believed that, and had been following that sort of path where he's like, I don't do, like, I'm not doing music for fame anymore, let's say. That's not, I don't think that's Bowie's reason, but he's like, I'm not doing it. I'm doing it for the love of the music. Then we come to the chorus where he's like, well, that's not true. I'm still here. I've been running all these decisions. Even though you tell yourself it's for another reason, I never lost control. Ah. So, convincing someone to do something and kind of manipulating um, motivations in that way. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. It's like the presence of something that you wish was not there, but is uh, but no matter is. how much you deny it, is ultimately there. The in this ah, case, yeah. or in this example, sort of the desire for fame, um, still existing despite saying like it's it's for the music, man. Yeah, and still driving you. It never lost control. It was still a, a just a motivating factor. So yeah, again, like this, like even the chorus can be taken so many ways, whether it's autobiographical, whether it's about music itself and how he is just a performer, then he's sort of selling him the world in some way, whether it's selling them on a lie or giving up his connection to the world to be a performer instead. There's, yeah, a lot of ways you can take this. (laughs) Yep, it's it's vague like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, uh, verse two seems to be about the narrator coming to realize that the the man who sold the world is is right. He's he's realizing that the reality presented by this individual is the actual truth and not what he had told himself. He says, "I laughed and shook his hand and made my way back home. I searched for form and land for years and years. I roamed. I gazed a gazeless stare at all the millions here." We must have died alone a long, long time ago. Yeah, it's kind of the conversation ends and it really paints this picture of him just like thinking about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then also says, makes his way back home, but like he just keeps walking. There is no home to return yeah. to or he can't find it or something there's no home there's not even land or anything resembling right. shapes apparently because <laughs> he searches for form and land and so if the man has quite literally sold the world it's it's gone earth is gone <laughs> there's no earth because he sold uh i wonder if that's a pun in that way I feel like it is. I feel like he's playing around with the idea of what it means to to sell the world and this is the man taking this journey back home, he's like, well, I'll just go back to my regular life. And then on this journey, what should be like a quick five minute walk is he's searching for form and land for years. He's going, Oh, Holy shit. Like the, the something's not gone. right here. Yeah. Someone <laughs> the sold whole world everything. is missing except for millions of 
I, uh, presumably people are lost souls. Yeah, perhaps in the same, or seemingly in the same situation as him. Mm-hmm. Um, who are unable to perhaps reconcile something about their former selves. Mm-hmm. Some, unable it's... to accept something they did in the past or something like that. Perhaps. Or, and this is where uh, an idea I mentioned a little earlier comes up. So like David Bowie said, this is about trying to like find a part of yourself when you're young. That is, you know, kind of a self-fulfillment, becoming who you're meant to be. Right. What if the narrator and all of these millions here are the selves who were meant to be, but were never fulfilled? So like, it's kind of like an alternate um, reality. Things that could have happened. Threads you, that could have been followed, but weren't. Yeah, and so he's been living in this false dream existence where whatever, whatever destiny he had came to be, he became this part of himself he was searching for. And, but then he encounters the man on the stair who is his actual self, who fucked up, who sold the world, didn't pursue, didn't risk, didn't do whatever he needed to do to self-actualize. And now this him the fictionalized version of himself is left to to wander in nothingness because it doesn't exist yeah along with so many other so many people who have not self-actualized he says we must have died a long long time ago yeah that's I, my best interpretation of this I, I like it um it sounds cool and, um, but again, whether there's enough to merit it, yeah. tough to say. Because I mean, then right after we go back into the chorus, well, first of all, well, now he's saying we must have died instead of I thought you died. Um, and now he's saying uh, we never lost control. Mm-hmm. Perhaps now, now from refer... the perspective of all those other selves. That's my understanding of it. A lot of people assume it's him linking himself with the man on the stairs, the man who sold the world. I mean, in a sense, they are one and the same. Because really, mm -hmm. it's the same person. Yeah. So to say we never lost control, realistically, they always had the same motivation because they were the same person. That's right. It's possible that it is then just denying its entire concept of of the split self, which is kind of a... I mean, I've thought of that too myself, this idea of like, oh, I'm not that person anymore. But really, you're still the same person. Like, just because mm-hmm. you have a different idea about something doesn't mean you didn't think something in the past or you didn't do something in the past. It's very easy to separate you yourself from your past self. So it's possible that it's just acknowledging that as well. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it does seem to deal in a different light. And we talked about this quote on Life on Mars, where he said he's always sort of writing about the topic of isolation and alienation. Right. And so this is almost an alienation from the self. And again, just like in Life on Mars, how the the film writer and the girl are united in that alienation, even though they don't know it, here he's united with these millions in this this sort of alienation and isolation from who they are. Yeah, this weird, like, uh, what's it? Um, Is it, what's the, like, Greek area for just souls to wander around? Is that Elysium, or is that? Yeah, Elysium, where there's the river that you can drink to forget about shit. Yeah, kind of has that that vibe going on because they're just sort of like wandering souls. 
right, very lost. And while there, it, there's not like immense pain in this, there is this this feeling of emptiness. Yeah, it's like a bit sorrowful of like mm-hmm. could have been could have been different, but it wasn't. This is just how it turned out. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. In the chorus, he goes, who knows, not me. We never lost control, perhaps referring to both him and the man who sold the world, who are one, and also to these these millions here. Um, you're face-to-face with the man who sold the world. So I, I think they are he, because I think this is now from the narrator instead of from the man on the stairs. He has embodied the role of the man who sold the world. Oh, gotta move my mouse. Yeah, and I mean, that's the song. That's the lyrics. That is the song. Um, they have that sort of like mean... poetic vagueness to them. That's always yeah. so much fun to talk about. Uh, one thing I didn't know until this week was both the line, form, I searched for form and land. I always thought he said foreign lands. It does sound which, like that. Uh, I always thought that too. And I thought he gazed a gazely stare. Which doesn't mean anything as far as I can Yeah. <laughs> And I looked up, so in order to understand what gazeless stare meant, I looked up what a gaze is. Uh, on, on Google, I just looked up the dictionary definition, and basically it's, it's, a, gaze, it's a look with interest, right? It's, it has some life to it. So a gazeless stare oh, is see. lifeless, which sort of plays into the, his idea of him being dead or having died a long time ago. Yeah, my sort of natural interpretation of it was just that it was, he was kind of staring off into the distance. Kind of a yeah, dead-eyed all, it's, stare. That's and that's basically it, right? It's sort of disinterested. It is without focus. You're looking it's, ahead, but you're not really seeing anything. It's kind of like when you draw the distinctions, like you're listening, but you're not hearing anything I say. Like it's that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. visually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. So yeah, just worth pointing out. But yeah, that's the song. Um, I think we did actually a pretty good job of not put uh, being like this is most certainly about this, while still being able to to decompress yeah i guess asterisk it's like we said pretty vague so there's a lot of possible interpretations of things Mm -hmm. these are the ones that that seem um most convincing to us Um, or these are our reactions to them but it's we would love to hear your interpretations of it hit us up on twitter hashtag cover me pod at jake the cressy at some alex wise guy tell us what you think about these lyrics Tell us whether you like this version, the Lulu version, or the Nirvana version best. Or another version we talk about on this episode. Now, with that, Alex, we're going to talk about the instrumentation on this. Which, one thing I want to note, there is a a Moog synthesizer on this, which was allegedly borrowed from George Harrison of the Beatles. George Harrison seems like he was kind of a cool guy back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, back in the 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 all-the-time eddies, if you ask me. Yeah, I guess so. It's just he was. That's the one you hear the stories from. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair, and that's when when they matter, right? Because he was a big deal. So I was like, oh wow, he's so down to earth. But yeah, so apparently they got the smoke synthesizer from George Harrison. So which part um, does the got... synthesizer play? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't notice a synthesizer on this song. Well, Alex, but I, I wasn't listening that. for one. Oh, yeah, sometimes that can happen. Um, I know there is a personnel list on this. So you got Tony Visconti on bass in this. You got Mick Ronson on guitar. You got Mick Woodmansey, a.k.a. Woody Woodmansey, on the drums and percussion, which features a, uh, I haven't written down what it is. It's a weird one. It's like a Yui or something like is that. Is it a like, Guiro? 
Yeah, Guiro. That's yeah, what it is. That's the like raking sound. Um. Yeah. So there is a Moog synthesizer in this somewhere. It's played by a man named Ralph Mace. Hmm. Maybe it's more audible in the the 2020 remix version. Maybe. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit that one right now. See what happens. So this opens up with the. I mean, uh, there are called? so there are like organ sounds that I assumed were an organ, but maybe synthesizer. Well, yeah, there's no organ listed, so I'd have to assume it. It's the, the synth. Ha, ha, right, just, that that's the part that comes in with the vocalizations. Yeah. So yeah. I guess that right. that must be it. Mystery right? solved. Wow, we're so good at this. We're, what are we professionals? No, we're hobbyists. No, amateurs. So this opens. This opens with the electric guitar. There's an electric and an acoustic on this. The acoustic is rhythm by David Bowie. The electric is Mick Ronson. Yeah, and that makes sense. It has what's, what's been described as a circular guitar riff. It, yeah, it, it's it very repetitive. That's what it opens yeah. with. And it just repeats. Yeah. Not for the mm-hmm. whole song, but for a lot of the song. And it's pretty distinctive. It has an interesting sound to it. Um, I've heard there are Latin elements on this album. I don't know exactly what scale that would imply. But anyway, it sounds cool, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there is uh there is some elements of this of not not straight Western or European music, whether it's Latin or otherwise. Yeah, maybe it's just that Guiro that they're referring to. Which I think is maybe considered a Latin instrument. Yeah, I think you're right. With a name like Guiro, it's got to be. Anyway, it's a very distinctive, like, electric guitar riff. Um, and it's it's fairly short and repetitive. But it kind of has a really cool sound to it. And I think it, despite the repetitiveness, like, doesn't really wear out its welcome. I guess it also doesn't play for the whole thing, so it doesn't stick around too long. Yeah, it's really, it comes in at the start and then a couple other points and kind of sets up maybe the, the circular nature of this song where the narrator is trapped in some strange space. It's eerie. It sets everything up. Um, So we get that guitar in. We get a bass that starts to jump in near the end of that bing, intro. Bing, bing. And then we clear the way for uh, bass, the percussion, David Bowie vocals, which have been put through a, a flange effect or flange effect. I don't know the correct, correct pronunciation. I mean, I usually say it's... flange, but I won't claim to know what the actual pronunciation is. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and you get that guiro, which is, is critical. It plays wait. a big role in that. No, wait. Flanger? What? That's a flanger. thing, right? Is it flanger? That is. I've always Maybe said it's flanger. Flanger. Huh, because like a flange is also just like a rubber thing. Right. <laughs> so I well, don't know, man. I don't know what to tell you. All right. Um, so yeah, you get the uh, the verse section after the intro, which has these big spooky organ sustains done by the, yeah, the synth. Which must be that, that synthesizer. Um, and back then... I, I like the early days of, of that like electronic music because they'll be like, we have this huge synthesizer. It might not have been huge, but and it can only play one note at a time, so we want to do this traditional music. So we'll record like eight tracks, and that's how we make chords out of a synthesizer. <laughs> so I don't know if they that did that here. That is a lot here. of work. 
Um, but that is just a story about general uh, synthesizer recording back in like the right. early days. Uh, where are we? We're on the we're on the verse. Yeah, we're right in the verse. Yeah, so you got a real groove on this bass. Mm-hmm. And that guiro, that guiro, that guiro is in strong. It is not a hidden element. Yeah, and um, there's that guitar riff is gone. It's it's yeah. all just acoustic. Yeah, so real stripped down, real haunting. Um, at about the thirty second <laughs> mark we get a double tracking of David Bowie on the line, which came as some surprise. Yeah, that happens. I mean, David Bowie does that kind of stuff fairly often where he'll have the like kind of disinterested lower version of his himself just kind of in the background as a... Yeah, the one who's almost just talking. Yeah, exactly. And just double those up. Which, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a cool effect, but I'm a big David Bowie fan, so... So, yeah. But he does Sold use it quite it. a bit. Yeah. And then we get kind of a big we get the, actually we get the guitar reintroduced on the I thought you died alone line, but it's just playing the vocal melody. Yes. And then everything builds up for the uh the chorus. For the chorus, which I think is an interesting chorus musically cuz to me it doesn't sound like a chorus, it sounds like a pre-chorus. And then yeah, there's no it's chorus. Such like, build up. That's what it feels like anyway. Yeah, because it's all... It's like that ascending pattern, which starts on the bass, and then the electric guitar joins in. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a strange way of, of handling that, because it, the song really does feel like it doesn't get to the chorus, but it's heading there. Yeah. Kind of plays with that, which is an interesting sound. I guess you play with anticipation, but... Yeah, it's it's this build up to uh, just a, a breakdown. Yeah, because at the end, um, it goes right back into that like opening section with the riff. Mm-hmm. Except this time you got a little more drum action there, but beyond that, like it is the same. And then it just kind of like loops because it does the the same like bass lead into the verse, and then just just another verse. Um, mm-hmm. And that's. As far as I can tell, the same as the first one. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, this is still early Bowie. This is a very like hard rock, like simple progression here. Although this one isn't like the hardest rock, but it's got some elements of that. No, yeah, it's not the Superman, but like no, it, it like the the guitar has a like fairly distorted sound. It's not like it's all, um, it's not like it's just a electric guitar or like an acoustic strumming or something it's all kind of together yeah, yeah, yeah. but but it also has those interesting rhythm elements yeah, yeah. Uh, particular like instruments but also like the feeling kind of has a little bit more of a uh, what, i don't even know what you would call it yeah i don't know but it's very uh it's more than the sum of its parts right even though this all is simply composed, like it, it provides yeah, an energy. It does feel that. very simple and like fairly simple loop. Um, now in that second kind of half ish of the song mm-hmm. or last like minute and a bit, uh, there's kind of a, I guess you call it an outro. Um, that, that riff is back. The intro riff. Um, mm-hmm. This is after we've gone through another verse and another chorus, actually two choruses. I believe. Yeah, because um, it does a short instrumental break after the second chorus, jumps into a third chorus, 
And then we get another short instrumental break, which leads into sort of our outro section where we get these far off Bowies. Yeah, doing a lot of uh, and kind of like multiple Bowies harmonizing again um mm-hmm. fading in and out and sweeping around uh that riff is still going um the low vocals kind of have this um like speaking into a fan effect oh like yeah it, it almost sounds like, like 320 yeah it almost sounds like like they're just kind of buzzy yeah uh... like those what are they called the like jawbone instruments Kind of sounds like that, but vocal. Yeah. Yeah. And so then that's sort of fade it out. for a while, and then it fades out. Yeah. Pretty slowly. Mm. Long fade out. I think it kind of works based on the content of the song. Like, we sometimes don't like fade outs on principle, but um, I think I'm finding more and more that we just maybe don't like bad fade outs or arbitrary fade outs. Fade outs. Yeah. <laughs> That seems to be the case, because this one seems to let you sit in the... Because it delivers the story in about two minutes. And then yeah. after that, you're sort of just left to sit in the idea of what happened in this song. While Which this is kind happened. of what happens in verse two. He talks mm-hmm. to this guy, the guy says something, and he's like, oh shit, he's right. And just like yeah. thinks about it for years and years, supposedly. Yeah, and then it's just... Uh, and the song kind of, yeah, just, just gives you space to be like, hey, did that blow your mind? Exactly, as there's almost this like hollow, like wailing, this lamenting of the truth. And you're like, I get was... it, because like the music is telling the story, but I don't know what the lyrics mean. Come on, man. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> it's like looking up a Snopes. Like, is it Snopes who does? No, it's somebody else who does it. But like looking up as a plot synopsis, be like, well, yeah, I get the general idea, but I don't. The details don't make sense to me. Right. I mean, I usually go to IMDb for my plot synopses right i was thinking more for books as over a, books english like cliff notes definitely read yeah cliff notes cliff that's notes. the one um that's the only one i could think cole's yeah, notes cole's notes is one there you go yeah it's and just that's, like that's people's notes people's notes but this it's like you're is... reading someone's notes sorry i keep interrupting come on Alex. I'm, t- I'm trying to wrap us up and bring us to the next one here yeah we're already almost an hour in. We gotta we gotta pick up the pace here. We gotta talk about Lou Lou. Nineteen seventy-four, recorded in nineteen seventy-three. Um, Lulu, we've talked about before. Didn't she also do the first version of "Here Comes the Night" by them? Was that Lulu? I feel like it was. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Wow! I'll tell you the truth. Here I'll be it wrong comes. Again. Here, Here comes, comes the, the night. night. Um, Here yeah, comes the night. Well, now I gotta look it up because I'm off. Yeah, Lulu is on here. Definitely on the list. Yeah, the list is not in order. I don't think. No. But that's yeah. Maybe I didn't do that back then. So yeah. Lulu was a more successful artist at the time. Supposedly, David Bowie met up with her and was like, "We're gonna make a pretty sweet album." And like they did this song uh, the, at least. <laughs> the quote, uh, according to Lulu, uh, was that he said, "I want to make a motherfucker of a record with you because you're a great singer." 
And they made this song. Yeah. So this is David Bowie on the saxophone, uh, on guitar as well, it says. I think the rhythm guitar and backing vocals. You have Mick Ronson on guitar, Trevor Boulder, who was the bassist for the Spiders from Mars, on bass. Right. Mike Garson on piano. And a, a dude named Ainsley Dunbar on drums, who's done drums for Bowie, Frank Zappa, uh, some other fucking names I forgot. But like a big, big like session drummer, essentially. Right, right. Studio guy. Um... She also did a Bond song. Just want to throw that out there. She did the Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, the game. Man with the Golden Gun, right? Um, yeah, so this is actually quite a different feel to this version. Um, it opens with this saxophone riff, which I guess is David Bowie on the saxophone. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, there's similar feelings, I think, in this version, but it approaches it in a very different way. Like, it's much higher energy. Um, yeah. The saxophone creates a very different feel. Like, it's a much harsher feel kind of cuts yeah, it's through loud and chaotic yeah um several saxophones actually i'm i multiple tracks i assume but like there's really yeah, low assume, like yeah. drone there as well as this bam 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 like riff on the saxophone right yeah and then there's the low so you're, you're right it has to be multi-tracked mm-hmm. and then I'm trying, I'm trying to remember if i thought anything specific about her singing um, it's been described as sleazy by critics of the time. I don't know if I necessarily agree with what that. What does it mean for it to be sleazy? I don't know. I, For me, I portray this one with a sort of more theatric approach to it. Okay. It, it's, uh, it's a little more theater. It's a little more like if you watch her Top of the Pops performance, she's oh. wearing this like black gangster outfit so it's all like like a suit and tie with a big hat oh Uh, okay so yeah it's in it and it is a little more show toony i think it's also uh greta described it as sounding like disco gwen stefani that's i think her exact phrasing i wish i knew more about disco or gwen stefani well gwen stefani i you know no doubt a little yeah it does have it does have that um like backbeat rhythm. Yeah, that dun dun on the guitar rhythm. Um in particular I mean even the way the drums are played, they're they're yeah. got a pretty pretty strong accent on the on the backbeat there, like stress on the backbeat. And there beat. are hand drums and a kit drum on this, I'm pretty sure. Definitely. Definitely lots of drums. Mm-hmm. And like a little bit of piano. Not very much. Yeah, not much. But like, like between, uh, like leading into the verse, there'll be like a piano, like gliss. Yeah. I think there's one at one forty three. If you're looking for an yeah, example, yeah, and like that. I can't hear it at other point, other times, or I didn't yeah. notice it. Um, what else does she do? Uh, she does like a doubling up of the vocals in the chorus. Right. So like, there's a male vocalist. David Bowie. Is it David Bowie? It's David Bowie, yeah. I couldn't decide if it was David Bowie. Well, before. it's according to the Wikipedia. Uh, but if you sang <laughs> if he sang backups. It's, and you're hearing him like do his his like what we said is disinterested lower range. Yeah. But I think it's much much cleaner on the track than you usually get it on like regular David Bowie songs. Yeah, he's not singing like David Bowie so much. And he seems to be doing his sort of like lower range before he really mm. developed it. 
So it's right. kind of a different sound that you don't get out of Bowie. Or maybe it's just covered up by enough other stuff that I don't notice. But yeah. it does it doesn't sound a lot like Bowie to me. Yeah. It's very interesting because this entirely doesn't sound too much like Bowie to me, despite no. the fact that it's mostly David Bowie and David Bowie musicians yeah, on the this track. The saxophone feels mm-hmm. Bowie. Not oh, yeah. super duper Bowie, but it feels Bowie. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, the rest of it, it, it's a lot more like upbeat and lighthearted, particularly compared to, and like dancey, uh, particularly yeah. compared to The Man Who Sold the World, but even like his adjacent albums didn't have anything like this. No, yeah, you wouldn't hear sax work like this for, like I, th- I want to say at least a few years, like until Diamond Dogs, maybe? Like Where you get Americans? that really like screamy sax? Yeah. Actually, Aladdin Sane, I think, has some of that where he gets a yeah. little rougher with instruments in general. Yeah, and like there's some saxophone. And Hunky Dory doesn't have this kind of sax. Anyway. No, it does have some sax. But yeah, it's it's very uh It's almost like Bowie before Bowie in some ways where he's doing Yeah, like it was all there, but he was on. kind of holding himself back and like not putting everything on every album, maybe. Mm-hmm. Which I can respect that. Yeah. So this one, I think it's a great showing i think lulu sings well enough i think that the i think the saxophone itself as this chaotic like element in terms of the the sort of mental struggle that the man who sold the world seems to talk about in some loose sense adds a good element right but like overall i think the original version haunts me more which is kind of what i come to this song for yeah this one definitely doesn't last in the same way um this one's almost like a haunted house yeah and it kind of and (laughs) it even has like like features like it Mm -hmm. it has like it brings in the ascending riff later on for the second chorus just for a bit like for a riff and then it kind of moves on to the next thing and then there's even like later on in the song a weird another riff that doesn't sound like it fits to me this yeah. is like after, like in the outro, this is like 240 or so. There's just like a guitar playing like, like it doesn't sound the same as the rest of the song to me. Right. It's it's like very. Sounds a little out of place. Yeah, it's a little um, out of place. So yeah, it, like I said, it kind of sounds like features in your haunted house. Mm-hmm. It's you can see the like the spooky lights going where there's spotlights with like patterns on them moving around as people in big like costumes, which are just like suits that are kind of ragged, jump around. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's got that kind of vibe to it, which isn't necessarily bad. This was more popular than David Bowie's version. Hit number three on the UK charts, uh, number eight on the Irish charts. Yeah, and, it's it's and, kind and of fun. countries. It definitely, it is, yeah, definitely feels like it would appeal more widely. Like, I wouldn't play uh, The Man Who Sold the World at, like, most parties. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but uh, but the saxophone does give it kind of an edge, I think. Saxophone in particular. Yeah. Like, it, it does make it very crunchy, whereas the original doesn't feel crunchy in that way. That's, yeah. 100%. I know. Crunchy. Does that mean anything? Probably not, but it means something to it me. It absolutely does. But yeah, it adds something. I, I 100% agree that the saxophone is a, a huge plus. Yeah. Definitely a huge and, part of what makes this version sort of its own thing. 
And it's also mm-hmm. David Bowie doing that, so... Yeah, so yeah, who can who can complain about it? Um, um, there's also a vibraphone in this version, or yeah. or something like that. I always um, worry that I'm saying the wrong thing, so it's like a vibraphone or a. I think it's too low to be a Glockenspiel. Some some sort of thing you hit with a hammer and it makes a little. Yeah, I looked up tubular bells. It's not tubular bells. They ring too That's much. My favorite Christmas song. Tubular bells. Tubular bells. <laughs> tubular bells. Um. Yeah, you mentioned playing this at a party. I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Lilu's the man who stole the world. Throw it on your Halloween playlists. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Um. And how does this one end? Does it just fade out too? Yeah, it does. I think so. Yeah. Totally fine. Totally. It kind of has its own outro, and then does some saxophone. All right. You ready to talk about a bunch more versions? Hell yeah. Alex, let's talk about John Cougar Mellon Camp in 1976. We passed up on the stairs. We spoke of words and where. Although I wasn't there. I was Which, very Do you know what he was at this, this time? Um, I, I was surprised believe to see this too. Johnny Coo- John Cougar. Cause okay. um, I don't, I didn't, I didn't check. That's I fair. Probably. I don't know his history. This is essentially before he was really big. Let's Apparently, see, the eighties, seventy six to eighty two. Before he was Johnny Cougar and John Cougar. Okay, he was one of those two. Probably. I mean, this is seventy six, so probably Johnny Cougar. That's what he was first. Johnny Cougar, baby. Yeah, doing the man who sold the world as yeah, a bonus track, which I was surprised by. But then I thought about it more, and realistically my own preconceptions of like what it is to be art rock versus blue collar rock are mostly just created by like marketing and are generally arbitrary so there's no reason there can't be cross-pollination between the two yeah and if anything was going to reach john cougar mellencamp from david bowie's collection like the man who sold the world is a pretty safe bet and like that all said this is a cover of the lulu version (laughs) <laughs> exactly <laughs> um yeah so it has that uh it's got that very driving rhythm behind it. it's a very fast moving version this is the shortest yep. version we're yep, going to yep. talk to be uh, about two and a half minutes um we get that bam bam from the rhythm guitar almost immediately along with an electric guitar doing the saxophone part yep that's all moved on to the electric guitar Mm-hmm. As it is said, this is the heartland, baby. This is the heartland. Although that said, it does bring something in. Now the original um, has a guiro. This mm-hmm. has a clave. Um, this is now the second verse uh, as okay. a clave. So that's another like South American instrument. Or interesting. Or it's used a lot in South American music, I should say, because yeah. I don't necessarily know where it came from. Um, so this one does have a faster pace to it, which really makes the uh, the bass sound much more disco. Disco, eh? Yeah, it it's got this like feels this bounce to it, and it, I think it's doing octaves at least at some point. So boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, bam. It's very dancey at the very least, which is again strange for John Mellencamp. Yeah, it is. I guess it's also early enough. I'm not knowing the like history of John Mellencamp that well. I'm assuming he didn't have 
um, like his persona totally established at the time. Yeah, this does seem to be more like straight up rock. Like even vocally, he's not putting on as much of that like heartland affectation. Right. Um. Yeah. Uh. He also mirrors that uh that vibraphone part from Lulu at almost the exact same time around one thirty five. That's true. Uh, it's on the "We Must Have Died" a long, long time ago line. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has. Oh, they, does it add a guitar riff? I'm trying to remember if that's from the Lulu version. Um, um around one fifty-five, it adds that riff, right? Is yeah, I don't know. Well, that. That's not what I was referring to specifically, but it does okay. have that, and that is different. But yeah. similar to the Lulu version, also feels a little out of place. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the cover like of the Lulu version, I don't know. Yeah, it's very clearly inspired by that. There's no other way you're getting that guitar oh, yeah, track sure. at the start, for sure. And it cuts out some of the repetition, so like it's over real quick. Yeah, it's very efficient, and it is a bonus track, so maybe not as much time put in. Just yeah, in general, it, it feels a little half baked. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, incomplete. Yeah. Even though it, it, it follows is... the Lulu version pretty closely, but pretty close. Then just kind of ends. Yeah, it's uh, it's it almost strips it down. It's almost like because whereas the original version of the song is just your standard rock formation plus a Moog synthesizer and uh, a, a, the that percussion, the Guiro. Guiro. And so then we move into the big arrangement with Lulu with saxophone and just quite loud instrumentation. And this one strips it down a bit, but keeps the the musical phrases. Yeah. So it's sort of a, an interesting progression. But yeah, ultimately, this one is mostly, I think, on here and fulfills the role of being a novelty because it's John Cougar Mellencamp doing David yes. Bowie. Yes, my jaw dropped when I saw there was a John Yeah, Mellencamp I was blown away. <laughs> Um, turns out it's like not that interesting. It's more interesting that it happened and not that interesting to listen to. Of an interpretation. Yeah. If uh, it was if it sounded like little pink houses, except it was the man who sold the world, like I yeah, if I'd this, be blown away. If this was like John Mellencamp in the nineties covering this song, that would be probably a little different, I'm assuming. Yeah, but this is young and upcoming the 80s, John 90s. Johnny Cougar. He's he's adding on an extra track, I think, because he liked it. And could play it and it's like oh this is pretty fun yeah 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 pretty pretty much so a footnote in this it's an it's an interesting thing it's an oddity check it out it, it doesn't take that long to listen to so and we're, we're gonna move from a footnote to what i think is just one of the one of the juggernaut ones we're gonna talk about here today uh midge you're in 1982 I didn't know this was in 1982. I also didn't know it wasn't a remix. I thought I thought it I thought it was a remix. It's actually just a full-on cover. Yes. Uh, featured in the 2015 uh, Hideo Kojima video game Metal Gear Solid V: The Phantom Pain, where it features prominently in the intro. Uh, James Midge Ur is a Scottish musician, singer, songwriter, and producer. His stage name is derived from the name Jim, but said backwards. Midge. Midge. Jim Midge. Yeah, that's Midge. a fun stage name. Uh, it doesn't work with my name very well. 
It's too obvious. Alex. Wouldn't that just be like Exela? Exela. Yeah, it's a bit weird. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Um. Anyway, yes, this is in Metal Gear Solid Five. Um. I remember also thinking this is odd and might just be a remix of the original. Mostly because I think the context it's played in in the game masks it a little bit because there's like stuff happening at the same time. So it's hard to listen mm-hmm. to just the track. But now that I listen to it, it seems much more obvious that it is a completely different song. Um, yeah. In particular because like it opens with a different riff. Well, that, that riff is the sax riff, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it's, I guess it is. It feels more like the the original version. But it still uses the riff from the loop. Yeah. Version. It's got almost an Arabian vibe on that riff, I find. Maybe it's just because I'm associating it with the game, which takes place in a desert in, Af- in Afghanistan, right? True. True. Although this song plays on Cyprus. Mm. Not, that's not that significant, though. That's right. Fair enough. But nonetheless, yeah. So it starts out with that track. It's a lot of electronic instruments on this. Yes, um, we're in the mid '80s. A lot of synthesizers yeah, going on. Yeah, a lot of synthesizers. Uh, that that opening riff is kind of like flutey type synthesizer. Yeah, kind of we will get a lot of flutey stuff. And his his vocals are actually mixed pretty low in the track compared to everything else. Which is another, another reason, reason it was it's... kind of difficult to tell if it was a remix. Yeah. So there's a big emphasis on the atmosphere here, which I think is. Like, A, one of the winning features of the original is the atmosphere it produces. Mm-hmm. And two, I think he does a great job of using electronic instruments to do that and also incorporating the Lulu riffs, which are great. Like, that sax riff is awesome. And then making that, bringing that back to its original haunting uh, roots. Yeah, because this doesn't feel like the the Lulu version at all. No. Um, It also... What what does this one do? Uh, it does like a cutout, so the whole first verse is just like these metallic synth sweeps, mm-hmm. and then brings in some like drums and doubles on. De- I thought you died alone. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a whispered a little... line. So yeah, that's yeah, kind we'll of the sort doubling. of stuff that brings in that that haunting atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, as we build up to the chorus, we get the big drum machine hits. And then we get a little space. Then we get that same pattern from the original, but on some more like crunchy synth instruments. Dope, 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 or something yeah, else. Yeah, for is... that build. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a piano in this one that plays like a bass. Yes. But like it, most of the time when it plays, it's like hit really hard. It's really like a, a, like a strong strike of the notes when it plays. Yeah. And usually it's like a singular note. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, after the first chorus, we come into a much more textured, uh, like a lot more layers coming on in the second verse after the first chorus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because uh, like everything stays on, but then like the the bass, there's like a different bass line. Mm-hmm. And then that harsher synth you were mentioning, that piano yeah. comes in at some point. Um, it's definitely a more like complex arrangement of it. Yeah. But it definitely feels like it's in the same vein. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, like this song's this version's just about six minutes long. Yeah. So we get a in the middle we get a very uh, like big instrumental space. Yeah. Well, um, actually, I, the other thing they do before that is they bring back mm-hmm. the intro riff from the original. That's right. Yeah. And that is, I mean, I I dig it. Yeah, because this version draws on the two biggest versions that came before it so clearly and, like, so expertly, I feel like it really finds a good balance between those and brings us something that feels fresh, but also so reminiscent of those two. Yes, it's a good combination of the two. Mm Mm-hmm. And it leans on what the original had in that sort of back minute of just instrumental haunting. But it, it plugs that in right in the center of this piece. It's like, here we go. We're going to sit in it. For, yeah, a very long time. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it, was, it was the 80s. You could do that. Yeah, you 100% could. And um, they yeah. did. And they did. Relies heavily on that, that circular guitar riff, but on a sort of fluty synth. Like you said, very simple, but for some reason, you can just fucking loop that thing, and it sounds great. Yeah, I don't know if I'm just... I've just heard it so much, and I like it, so I can hear it even more. <laughs> right, yeah, we're like, well, it's good. a classic. Yeah, is it it's, just it's, maybe it, fundamentally it is just catchy? Good. I don't know. Maybe no one can answer that question. Maybe not. Um, you get some of those vocalizations in this middle section. Uh, they start to build in more as you come along. Around 3.40, you get the piano joining in again to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's it's basically the instrumentals until the yeah. 543 mark. It adds some, like, like, vocalizations as well. Yeah, those tend to build throughout. But they're also, like, fairly backgrounded. Yeah. Um, but it all kind of fits in. It's that, like, kind of textury synth thing that was present but in the 80s, but, like, developed a lot afterwards. Yeah. Um, and then cuts down for the for the mm-hmm. fade out. Like the fade is pretty long because the song's pretty long. Um, and then sort of the instruments drop out over time. And then at the end, it's that piano and the fluty synth, and then it, that's it. Yeah. Now, at the time I first heard this when playing Metal Gear Solid, I think I was skeptical of it, partially because of the the history I knew of the man who sold the world and how people thought it was a Nirvana song. And I was like, you people should know it's David Bowie. Ah! I was mad about it. But coming back to it this week, I've, I've been pretty impressed by this version. I think it's very good. It definitely has like a distinct space among these covers Mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, anything else to say, Alex? Um, no, I think it's I think it's time to talk about the last big one we're going to talk about today. Not the last one yeah. we're going to talk about today, but there were four or three covers I really want, or four covers I had to put on this. Yeah. Um, three because they were important, and one because it was John Mellencamp, and I was like, what? Um, <laughs> but this is yeah. now the last one of those. Yeah, and that is Nirvana, released in 1994, recorded in 1993 at their MTV Unplugged appearance. We passed upon the stairs, spoken walls and 
y'all know Nirvana. Yeah, was uh, I wasn't sure. I was second guessing myself. There's two versions of this by Nirvana. Is there two versions? There's this is the unplugged version, and then they have another live version that they play that's not unplugged. I mean, oh, this isn't really okay. unplugged, but like they all have acoustic instruments that yeah. are plugged in and amplified. But like they played it live, so they have like a yeah they, another version um, that I put this one on, but I wasn't sure. They're well, yeah, they're I think similar. This is, yeah, and this is the version. Okay, like this is why right. I guess this everybody is the, knows yeah. this. All right. I wasn't I wasn't sure, but yeah, this version was number three for a time on MTV's most played music videos. It hit number seven on Canada's Much Music Countdown one time. Very popular. Uh, it's uh, and that said, it's very very faithful to the original. Uh, it is very close. Back. Also, mm-hmm. brief tangent. Also, unplugged. Yes. These are all amplified instruments. Um, all am every single instrument is plugged except in. Except I think there's a there's a cello that yeah! plays. Um that I there didn't know until I watched the video. Yeah, and then you could like pick out a sound that matched the movement, right? Because that's yes, what I did. Exactly. I was like, oh yeah, it's exactly. there. Like a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it like kind of follows the bass. Mm-hmm. Um, and like important things well to note in the vocals. Apparently, on in a journal Kurt Cobain kept, he listed uh, the man who sold the world at number forty-five in his top fifty favorite albums. Um, him and the bassist Chris Novoselic were introduced to this album by one of their drummers, Chad Channing, who bought a used LP version of it and then then recorded it on a cassette and like played it in the car for them. And Cobain was like, "Oh, it's fucking awesome!" Ah, classic. Yeah. This seems like it would appeal to the like Nirvana era of music. Obviously, David Bowie was pretty influential to music that came after him, and like also was contemporary to him. But mm-hmm. there's sort of that like existential ennui present in this. There's like this downer note that I would associate with grunge generally. Yeah. Um, and especially with, like, and I like all that stuff too. Yeah, I, I think. But that's great. also that idea of like, I mean, there's sort of ideas of selling out and ideas of trying to find yourself and things like that that are like fairly universal. But also that I would generally associate with grunge. Right. Yeah, they're more pronounced in the grunge era for sure. Um, yeah, and this version is, it's the most popular version of this, I think, at least in modern times. Uh, it's a very straightforward sounding version. Uh, I actually have a quote from Bowie here. He says, I was simply blown away when I found that Kurt Cobain liked my work, and I've always wanted to talk to him about the reasons for covering The Man Who Sold the World. He continues, it was a good, straightforward rendition and sounded somehow very honest. Would have been nice to work with him, but just talking with him would have been really cool. Uh, Yeah. So that's honestly a good just summary of it. This is a very straightforward rendition. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. I'm just trying. Is there like? I mean, it's really that like close cover, but distinct enough just because it's sort of in the style of a band that we know the style of. That's right. Like they um, do a pretty and- solid cover of it, and it sounds like Nirvana playing it. You know. Um, yeah. But beyond that. There's not a ton to set it apart. For sure. It's uh and like it's a good demonstration of Nirvana's use of tone. 
like the tone mm-hmm. on the guitar is i think a great distortion quality um his his musical delivery his vocals on this are like exactly what the song asks for so when people of course and this is coming back to my own uh, experience with this song i used to hate this version because it wasn't the david bowie version essentially right but coming back to it now it's really just like a matter of it's a flip of the coin, really, whether this is better or worse than the David Bowie version. If you're a Nirvana fan, you really love Nirvana, this one's going to cut through, and I think rightfully so. It's, it's essentially an update for a different era, a different genre, a different audience. Yeah, and perhaps even you... a different continent. Mm-hmm, perhaps. If that's even significant. I once read a thing that said it was, but I, I don't understand personally. Well, this might come to an idea we talked about where David Bowie sort of took the performer angle on music. Like the when he's up there, he's a performer, right? Ah, right. With Kurt Cobain, there seems to be the removal of that, as if this is Kurt Cobain simply singing to the people. So there's less of that barrier, which maybe resonated more with a modern era. Yeah, than I guess the, the, the fact the that it's live. Sorry, I was talking over you. That was very rude. No, of go me. ahead. I guess no, the fact good. that it's it, live as well, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. adds to that yeah because it is i mean the band's there but it is but the fact that it's kind of a low-key version and the camera really focuses on kurt cobain yeah uh, a lot of the time kind of has that quality of like a more personal thing yeah mm-hmm. and a lot of people have uh since he died um, i mean he passed shortly after yeah the recording of this it was the the next year people really do like connect the lyrics of this song to him with those the ideas of mental illness up in the air like you even mentioned possible suicide connotations like True. there there is this strong now spiritual connection between kurt cobain and this song despite it being a david bowie original um worth noting a lyrical change he does Instead of seeing all the millions there, he says, we walked a million hills. Oh, that's what he says? Yes, I had to check genius for that, but that is what he says. Yeah, he mumbles it a little bit, but I guess Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that David Bowie doesn't mumble anything in that song. Yeah, Um, exactly. It's also, we talked about the tone. It has an interesting sound. It's all very kind of buzzy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just part of it being live. But it's an interesting kind of tone to the whole thing, I think. Yeah, and he does the uh, the vocalization part on the guitar. So that... that yes, oh, and, the, and that cello. That's right. Joins in there with him, too. That's correct, yeah. So he, it's, And that's an acoustic guitar that he's actually also run through a fuzz box. So something to add distortion to the guitar when he needs it. Yeah, which he plays the like intro riff on it, uh, and then just mm-hmm. kind of strums the rest. So it's cleaner for the rest, and then he'll throw that fuzz on, I guess. Yeah, and there is also another guitarist there. So there, uh, there's, there's two guitars holding this down. Mm-hmm. And, and also a uh, young Dave Grohl in a ponytail and a turtleneck. Yeah, unrecognizable almost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but this is a, a very, it's a good performance. You hear him talk about the end. He asks if he fucked that one up. And then he's like, oh, I might not, you know, fuck the, uh, this next one up. Just, mm-hmm. you know, some stage banter with the people. He says something about doing the next song in a different key. And he's like, and if it sounds bad, these people are just going to have to wait. And it's, just, it's very, very yeah, charming. Just yeah. like that banter. And th- that's part of that, like you were saying, that sort of like direct feeling. 
the mm-hmm. I guess face to face feeling. Um, one other thing I think that adds to that, there's like a moment where it starts to like f- feedback starts to happen, and I'm mm. assuming someone backstage had to hit a button or slide something to make that right. happen uh, because it doesn't doesn't last very long. But like you can hear it start, so there's kind of that like imperfection, which is always nice to hear, or always yeah. interesting, you know. Yeah, it's, it's part of the story of this version. Yeah, how it how it still like it sometimes improves the overall result, even though it is technically a flaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's I mean that's the Nirvana version, a straightforward cover that is that somehow manages to to stand toe to toe with the original, despite basically doing the same things. Yeah, just by distinctly covering it with your own sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, for that reason, I'm gonna say it's. Pretty cool. It was pretty solid. <laughs> pretty solid. With that, we're going to talk about I2I in 2014. We passed up on the stairs. We spoke of was and when. Although I wasn't there. Alex, yes. is this the French prog rock group? Is that who um, uh, Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. Um, there's two or three, possibly, uh, groups with this name, I think, mixed in on Spotify. Okay, so Spotify has erroneously listed them all together. Yes, because the first, there's an album from 2009, and then there's mm-hmm. three albums with the same font for the band name. Um, that's different right. from the first one. And then there's this album, which I think is a completely different band. I think you must be right because I saw a picture of them on the one with the same. So the one with the most recent album there, I found their Facebook page and they're all dudes. Yes. And also if you listen to them, they don't sound anything alike. I didn't do that, but that's um, also a smart move. I know, right? It seems so obvious in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> um, and all the, all the uh, listeners, like if you go to about uh, people all listen from Brazil. So I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, it's uh, it is what it is. So this and is also the most listened thing is something they appear on allegedly, which is a forever freestyle thing. Like if you look at their most popular stuff. Yeah. So yeah, there's yeah, at yeah. least but... probably three different groups on this page. Uh, there's also another band called I Two, not the number two I. Um, right yeah that's just a different american band so like i don't know who these people are is what i'm saying yeah it's uh it is confusing but they <laughs> do this version that we're going to talk about which is got some sort of your your light orchestra focus there's some violin and some cello in the mix here yeah it starts with the the intro riff is that uh bass is that cello that i believe plucking? so yeah it's plucked bam 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 but doesn't like ring like a guitar would yeah it's definitely in I don't know if it's full on cello or if there's something slightly smaller than that, but it's definitely got it's in that range. Um the vocals are um at least doubled, possibly just two women harmonizing. I believe it's two women harmonizing. That's what it that sounds my... like. Mm-hmm. But you know, sometimes these these audio mixers are tricky. Yeah, and they just you. layer stuff like like I was saying with those early electronic albums. Sometimes you had one single monophonic um, synthesizer, and you just like layer a whole whack of tracks on top of each other, and you make mm-hmm. a whole whole big thing out of it. 
That's right. So they'll put in the time. So you can't always just assume, oh, no, they're too busy to, yeah. to double track it. They'll but fucking anyway, eight it track does, it. It does sound like, like just two people singing and harmonizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one's all like, or not all, but mostly like acoustic. It's definitely a more acoustic feeling on it. Uh, there is an electric guitar that comes in pretty early on, uh, but it's muted early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it comes in with the uh, the circular guitar riff a little later. It's distorted and it's still pretty low in the mix, right? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. so like we start on that bass, but then later on. Yeah, it's yeah. played on the guitar. Um we get like a, a musical break on I Thought You Died Alone where it's just the vocals and then they come back. There's hand drumming on this. There is hand drumming on this. Um, mm. it's got that sound to it. The way they sing to me sounds a bit jazzy, but that's always like, I'm not an expert, you know? Right. Just the way they kind uh, of, huh. maybe it's classical. I don't know exactly what the word for it. The way they like shape their vowels sounds yeah, very, it's trained. very, very trained, very classical, very much. I don't think what this song deserves in treatment. Yeah. It's kind I of, think- it's a very like soft feeling. And straightforward, and it's not, it doesn't have like the kind of intrigue mm-hmm. of the other good versions because this is really, they all kind of have something like there's a sort of mystery of the Bowie version. The Nirvana has this more like hard edge to yeah. it. Um, and then obviously the Mijur version also kind of has that mystery. Yeah, thing, and the with Lulu the, like, version has a bit of chaos to it. Yeah, so they all kind of have these aspects to them. But this one is more like the John Mellencamp version, and it doesn't really have that much of an identity mm-hmm. for the with, kind of intrigue. Yeah, I think with that, their bass is, I think, maybe one of the strongest elements. In the verses, it has a really good groove. Boop, 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 boop. And you oh, could yeah. almost get some of that like New Orleans jazz, kind of like like some Bayou shit going on, and that would play with this. Yes, I do agree that that's probably the strongest part of it because I didn't notice it before, but when I started listening to it today, um, kind of got into it, you know? Mm-hmm, where you're like, oh, this is, oh, yeah. this is something I can like, nod along to. I can get into this. Uh, there's a guitar solo in this around 212. There is a guitar solo in this. Um, yeah. It starts with like the verse melody and then just goes into a solo. Um, it, I think it has an interesting sound to it, actually. It's yeah, kind of like, it's a good tone. It's like a bit bouncy. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out if this is twang. I don't, I don't know if this is twang. I don't know. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like kind of low and echoey. Yeah. What, what do you think? How would you describe it? Yeah. It's almost like kind of hearkening to older recordings but focusing on a bass here like a lower end rather than the high end yeah it's kind of like approaching jangle pop mm-hmm. but but like cutting out a bunch of high end yeah it's like jangle pop but all low end yeah so it's like the guitar part in um james bond theme but more filtered yeah it definitely made me think of that a little bit so yeah like the guitar solo interesting the bass on this yeah honestly the solo itself 
fine, but the, I like the, mm-hmm. the sound of the guitar. Interesting. Yeah. So there's at least yeah, the two interesting passable. things about this song, but they don't really last. They don't really... I don't think it's, like, enough. But those are mm-hmm. definitely two things about this song. Yeah, and, like, the, the vocals really don't do it for me. And if that's all you had for vocals, you could maybe try and just tuck them in the same way that Midge does, where it, it's, like, they're obviously not the focus. Right, but, but this this one is they're up front. For sure. Yeah, they're right in your face. So yeah, this one really didn't didn't move the meter much for me, except for a couple elements. Mm-hmm. With that, let's talk about Thin White Ziggy yeah. in 2015. Thin White Ziggy. Which, as a um, name, is like a painful, painful Bowie reference. <laughs> Just be, like, yeah. like very, like upfront. These are Bowie things. Um, although interestingly enough, this is a cover of the Lulu version. Well, probably it's yeah. a cover of the Mid-Year version. But it's really not. But it's really a cover of the Lulu version. I say yeah. that only because this is a, an album, or the album it seems to be on is music featured in the video game Metal Gear Solid Five, Diamond mm-hmm. Dunks, Phantom Pain. Um, and in the title says, from Metal Gear Solid Five, Phantom Pain. So, yeah. And that is the weird thing about this group, <laughs> who only existed in 2016, basically. Yes, I couldn't um, really figure out who they were. I they seem to exist for this. Yeah, and for anything which is like a compilation... So a lot, if you look at their most popular songs, almost every version has a brackets after it, attributing the song to some popular piece of media. The Man Who Sold the World from Metal Gear Solid Five, Under Pressure from Rock Band 3, Starman from The Martian. <laughs> from Rock Band 3? Like, what? Yeah, from Rock Band, not even from Shrek 2. No, I'm kidding. That's not Shrek even, like, featured in, in a thing. That's, like, like Rock Band just puts so- pop songs in it. Yeah, like, pop there's songs so many songs that could be from Rock Band. But they're not. Yeah, that's like anyway. That's hilarious. Circular referencing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's like what they do with all of the these songs, and except for heroes and dancing in the street. Some the of them even have multiple have references. Yeah, like Let's Dance from Zoolander, We Own the Night, and Boat That Rocked. Like Golden Years. And that's from on a one Night's version. Day. Another version attributes Let's Dance to Rock Band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on their David Boy soundtrack at the movies. A tribute to music featured in films. Yeah. So anyway, is, they're I'm, an odd group. My, my best guess is there's some sort of like loose collection of musicians from other projects who who were also unsuccessful would be my guess who came together in 2016 because yeah. they're like David Bowie's dead and now we're, we're all fans of him. Let's let's churn out some garbage and here is some of that garbage for us to listen to today. Right. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, So you got the sax on this. It sounds almost identical to the Lulu version. There's some buzzing instrument that hits those sort of driving two notes and just kind of drones in the bottom of the track. Yeah, um, it it plays that low sax sound. Uh, Later on, it plays a little bit more clearly, and it does seem to be a guitar. Okay. But but it's not apparent at first. Definitely not apparent at first. Uh, Um, Just playing like really low. Yeah. Um, let's see what else. There's a there's like a quick. It's 
oh, there's an electric piano in this version um, that plays a couple times. Like it plays a, a gliss, which is happens in the Lulu version as well on the piano, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and has later on plays this like kind of ascending pattern. And that's another thing where I feel like there's one element that like, hey, might actually be kind of interesting, but they hardly use it. Like that yeah. could be the identity of this version. And then they just like don't use it enough for it to be yeah it's it's so weird that they're saying this is from the metal gear solid 5 <laughs> version which is i would i'd says make some bold moves and this one yeah. actually just goes and clings to the lulu cover so closely yes with it's m- very strange like, it's very strange um like the baseline's very similar it's actually bears some similarity to the the johnny cougar version and that it's got that sort of upbeat, like, fastness to it. This version does feel a little quicker. Yeah, I think the other um, thing it has in common with the Johnny Cougar version is that it should have been two and a half minutes. Yeah, that's like, what it should have I, gone, I don't know. Sure. I, this one got boring. I don't fully understand why. Like, it's shorter than the Lulu version, but I feel like they just ran out of steam. Well, Even yeah, though it's you, basically well, the same. Yeah. I don't really know how that works out, but that's how that's, I felt. You, you don't need a worse version of the Lulu version. <laughs> yeah. It's uh not much going on here. It really not a lot. Um there's some hand drumming and kit drumming again, which I think is also in the Lulu version. Yeah, this is just a carbon copy with worse elements. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. That's it. Now let's talk about another piece of garbage. Unsound Americans in twenty sixteen as <laughs> Unsound well. Unsound Americans. <laughs> Again, oh, and this is also Blackberry Lily, whomstever that oh, may be. I forgot to look up Blackberry Lily. I couldn't, I couldn't find him. Um, I don't, I've, I've listed this as another unknown product of the early Bowie mornings because this is 2016. Yeah, this is also 2016. Um, it's the opening definitely has a different sound to it, and that was like when I made this playlist. That was kind of what I was looking for because I didn't want. They'll trick you, dog. Those openings depth. will trick yes. you. <laughs> Um, cause it sounds quite different. Um, it, cause everything is on strings. It's playing the intro riff on strings or synth strings. Mm-hmm. But this one is very like string based. Yeah, it's, uh, it really is. And then like a, a children's choir. It definitely has, um, like the, the vocals don't sound super produced. Mm-hmm. Or like heavily professional necessarily. Or heavily performed either. It's <laughs> they de- yeah, they feel more amateurish. Yeah. So you're right, it is this like like violin we get what sounds like a child to me singing, and some backup ooze. Yeah, it's a lot of backup ooze. Yeah, on the chorus you get some some sort of plucked violin as well, along with the the upwards riff being performed on the violin. Yeah, they had in the pizzicato to use yeah. vocabulary. A little pizzicato. Uh, yeah, it's it's all very predictable and super fucking boring. Yeah, it's a very kind of I don't even know. I was gonna try to describe it as something. Um, I I it reminds think me this of 
Oh, sorry. Like, uh, it reminds me of, I think the, the group is Scala, S-C-A-L-A, who's just like those two brothers who like work a children's choir and we've done oh yeah those guys it's like that but without a full children's choir yeah i i did think like i liked the outro it was just a lot of uh, like a lot of vocal layers and uh strings yeah that's a a smart move pretty much all i had going for it yeah i mean it was too long a journey to get there it is yeah uh this one similar to the previous one kind of runs out of steam it's also almost a full minute it's 50 seconds longer than the previous one so it's it's on the longer side it probably uh, wouldn't have had to have been or they could have done some more to make it interesting yeah that's all there is to be said about this one and with that we're going to get into our final verdicts, Alex. We've got three verdicts. categories today. We've got the worst version. We've got the best version. And we've got the version that would play when you encountered your other self. When you encounter a man upon the stair who isn't really there. Hmm. All right. Alex, worst version. Worst we got version. a strong running in the, in the last yes, two or three last, cause, Yeah. I mean, there's all the ones that I had to have on here, and then I was, like, filling it out, and it didn't go great. But worst version, I think, for me is uh, Thin White Ziggy. It is perplexing, and it is also fairly boring. Yeah. It's bad. It's only advantage, and the only reason I won't be giving it worst version is that it's a minute shorter than Unsound Americans, which was just that just drivel. I think it is important to have these two on because they speak to a, a larger picture of the David Bowie scene, which is... The, the after death like worship right and so there is just this churning out of covers and performances from artists small and large and the quality is in such high variance uh that it's you know we, we've gone from these very genuine versions at the start where it's like i like this song i'm gonna cover it where it's like oh we gotta get it it, it feels a little insincere to be like oh we gotta get in on this because bowie's dead so now it's important to do this the same way that, like, every Canadian became a tragically hip fan once Gordon Lightfoot died. No, just kidding. Gordon Downey. <laughs> Gordon Downey. Gordon Lightfoot, still alive. Still alive. He's quite old. He is super old. I better well, not, yeah, like, is... check the news and see. Tragedy. Yeah. Anyway. Well, that already happened once. He was erroneously reported dead. That's so. true. But yeah, I think it speaks to the uh, the the modern scenario of covers for famous artists who die is that people just churn them out in this this such an insincere way that Thin White Ziggy and Unsound Americans don't even really exist. They're not an actual group. <laughs> That's true. They don't seem to have a profile. Yeah, so it's just it is quite odd. They're both shitty. Uh, I'm gonna give it to Unsound Americans. Let's flip this, Alex. What's the best version of this? What is the best version? Hmm. I think for me, mid-year is the best version. The best cover. I agree. Um, I think the Nirvana version is solid, but for me, it, it's, not, it's not the best. Um, and Lulu is interesting, but again, for me, it's not the best. Not the best. And those are really the ones that are in the running. Um, for <laughs> yeah, that's, it really comes so, down to those three, right? Um, yeah, of those three, it's got to be mid-year. It's longer, yeah, but I think, that's just my, mm-hmm. you know, my sensibilities are more mid '80s post-punk electronic yeah, music than they are Nirvana. 
At least but they I are today. I feel like today. Mitch Ure, in his song, grabs what's good about the Lulu version, which is predominantly that sax riff. Which is, and he grabs, again, more Bowie. <laughs> which is, yeah, more Bowie. And he grabs what's good about the Nirvana version, which is also just what's good about the original. And he puts those two together and does it in like an 80s electronic post-punk context, which is, I think, really meshes with the song and that haunting space very well. I think it is just solid. Yeah. So, I mean, it was also like the version curated by Hideo Kojima to be in um, Metal Gear Solid Five. Um, That's right. So, like, it was already kind of vetted by someone who we at least partially agree with the tastes of yeah he's i mean he's got good fucking taste big fan of his games big fan of him being a fucking weirdo uh <laughs> yeah that's, that's my glowing review of hideo kojima i liked death stranding so i'm on that side of history for people who need to know yeah for people that means anything too like yeah Yeah, I thought it was fucking awesome. And, uh, I mean, that's he does that shit all the time. He just fills games with music he likes. He did that with Metal Gear Solid Five: Phantom Pain. He did that with Death Stranding, where half the time you're walking around, he's like, you ever hear this band? And you're like, no, I haven't. He's like, they're pretty fucking cool. You're like, all right. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Thanks, As Hideo. far as I can tell, he kind of wanted to do it earlier on, but it was more difficult. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so that's the best one. Midge, you're Midge. Do you think it's? Yeah, it's gotta be. I'm. I don't, I don't know, know what it is. The last name. I don't know. Don't need to know. Alex, you encounter a man upon the stairs who's not really there. This sounds like an old text adventure. <laughs> uh, what what cover version's playing? Uh, wait. So the person's not there. Well, yeah, but they. they so do I encounter it. someone or not? That's. I know. We're all asking that. <laughs> um. <laughs> I don't know if I have like a good response for this one. Alex, this is really just a wild card pick. So, yeah, this is a wild I mean... card pick. Um, it's John Mellencamp, because I'm in the heartland, baby. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no, you've done. You've locked it in with John Mellencamp. I'm going with yep. Lulu, because if I encounter a guy, it's going to be crazy. Is that a Lulu reference? No, it's just because that, that saxophone's pretty wild. That's all I got. Oh, okay. Then you say, down uh, at Lulu. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, bum, bum. If I knew anything off that Metallica slash Lou Reed album, I'd, I'd plug Lulu. that in right here. I'm singing uh, Lulu, down at Lulu by Ohio Express. That's okay. a pretty good song. That's Japanese for Good Morning Express. <laughs> oh, hi, Express. <laughs> uh, um. Alex, that's our opinions. Yeah. Y'all got different opinions, similar opinions. Hit us up on Twitter. Hashtag GovernMePod. At Jake the Cressy. At some Alex Wise Guy. Be sure to rate and review us. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Apple Podcasts is actually what it is, not iTunes. But, you know, I'm old. Apple Podcasts. Fucking review us there. Tell everybody how good we are. Tell your friends about us. Send us questions at GovernMePod at gmail.com. Send us comments, concerns, suggestions for the future. Uh, we're coming up to the end of this month, uh, which which y'all know know what that means. It's no more Bowie songs ever again, until next year, maybe. We'll probably throw some. Or like we'll at some it point. It's not like we're. I'm, I mean, I don't think I could not talk about Bowie again. It's yeah, it's gonna happen, people. <laughs> It'll happen. But this is this is we'll the end of our break. formal discussion. It's been a blast. 
Uh, with that, we're going to go into our bonus segment. Alex, it's been five years since David Bowie died. It has. How are you holding up? Um, pretty well. Pretty well. I mean, yeah. I think it's unfortunate. I, I always wanted to see David Bowie live. And mm-hmm. I was hoping um, that he would tour some more. I even speculated that it might happen for Black Star. Uh, that got shot down pretty quick. Uh, but i i don't want to dwell too long on the on the death of celebrities because i think that he did provide us with a lot to a lot of material and i'm still enjoying it and it's like i said unfortunate there won't be more but i really do appreciate what exists and in addition to that i had a dream several years before he died that he did die like he died in my dream. Like he wasn't there, but he there was a thing. There was an announcement. David Bowie died, and then I kind of woke up and, like, in my groggy state, couldn't remember if it was reality or not, and just got really sad. So I right. went through you had a test run the experience of David Bowie has died several years before, and then yeah, I, I already had gone through it once, and then when it really happened, I was kind of prepared <laughs> somehow. <sighs> That's um, fortunate. Yeah. I only once had a dream with David Bowie where he was in sort of his like Ziggy Stardust stuff where he's got the big like third eye. Mm-hmm. And we just sat in a movie theater together and we held hands and watched a movie. It's pretty dank. That's an but interesting did not prepare dream. me for his death. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's it's uh it's been a wild ride these past five years I, it's that's the only celebrity death that's really shook me up like i get bummed out when i especially in this past year there's been so many musicians that have died like like uh what's his face from the cars um you got neil peart who passed you got the guy from fountains of wayne um clearly i'm not that attached to them because i can't remember any of their names oh, but, names on the spot not a good thing. yeah uh, not a good thing but like yeah, those all kind of hit, and I was like, ah, like a lot of good ones are, are leaving. But yeah, David Bowie hit the hardest. And I think for a time, I couldn't even listen to David Bowie music, because I was just like, oh, and it's all it's all over. But this year, and with this month, I've really come back to it, and been diving into different Bowie albums, and re-listening to stuff, and been like, oh, I actually really like this, and I can listen to it and not be totally bummed out. And I watched the Lazarus Lazarus musical. Yeah, it's been a good year for Bowie for some reason. It's just been yeah, well, nice. I'm glad. I'm glad you worked through whatever, whatever you needed to process. Yeah, I am glad as well. Um, yeah, that's really it. I didn't have a bonus segment planned. We're just wrapping up cover Bowie. I think I forgot to call it cover Bowie, and that's my biggest regret. This month, as I've been well, very I mean, consistent, and you probably remember, name. you probably remembered at the start of the intro, but by the end, I mean it was oh, so God, long, it was so fucking long. Jesus Christ! Uh, yeah, and so that's it. That's the episode. Tell us what you thought about Cover Bowie. Tell us what you think about David Bowie in general. Tell us where you were on the day David Bowie died, so we can prove that you didn't kill him. That's it. As we always say, uncover me. Oh no, not cover me. We never lost control.